Hello, everyone. This afternoon, we're reading from Acts chapter 4 and commencing at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you or the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they couldn't see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them again in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Thank you very much for reading for us, Wayne. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's James. It's, uh, let me add my welcome to you. It's a great privilege uh, to be looking further in the book of Acts with you this afternoon. Uh, let me pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, give us confidence in Christ alone that we might speak all the more confidently about him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, names carry weight, and certain names carry a lot of weight. How would you respond if you got an email from your CEO requesting an urgent meeting? You'd drop everything, wouldn't you? This name carries authority. As a vet, I occasionally write a prescription for people's animals which they can collect from the pharmacy. Once I forgot to write my name on the bottom of the prescription, the pharmacy wouldn't accept it. It needed my signature. It required the authority of my name. A single name can carry great authority and power. For the Jewish people living at the time of Jesus, there was no more significant name than God's name. God's name was too terrifying to even utter. They were too scared to use God's name inappropriately. God's name is his identity, his reputation. God's name is his honour and his glory. How people treat his name matters. Acts chapter 4 is really all about one name. I wonder if you notice that as Wayne read it for us. One name mentioned more than anyone else. A continuous thread from start to end. It's a divisive name. An exclusive name. An unstoppable name. A name which carries with it power and authority. He's not physically present, but he's very much alive and active. It's the name of Jesus. Jesus' name is back in the public square. God cares for the reputation and honour of this name. It's at the centre of his plan for the world. It's at the centre of his glory. How you treat Jesus' name matters, and this name won't be silenced. As we come to Acts chapter 4 this afternoon, we arrive at a key shift in the book of Acts. 
Up until this point, the early church has been the picture of idyllic perfection, sunny mornings and green pastures. The Holy Spirit has come and access to God has been opened wide through Jesus. People were being healed. A paralyzed man turned gymnast, performing somersaults, I'd imagine. The believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, picnics, I'd expect. And they loved prayer meetings. How wonderful. A magnificent picture of God's kingdom breaking into this world. Remember Jesus' final words to his apostles, Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. At this stage, though still in Jerusalem, the gospel looks to be on track to reach the end of the earth. But in Acts chapter 4, the storm clouds roll over. Opposition rains down, which threatens the very existence of the church. If there's one big message from this encounter, I think it's this. The gospel advances in power by speaking boldly in Jesus' name. The gospel advances in power by speaking boldly in Jesus' name. The storm clouds roll over, a turn for the worst. Verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. The Sadducees were the Jewish elite. They were the wealthy and powerful. And they also held a theological view different to the Pharisees, which rejected the concept of bodily resurrection. So for them, Peter's teaching about Jesus and the resurrection was both politically destabilizing and heretical. So naturally, it must be silenced. They get put in prison. It doesn't look good for the gospel, does it? But if we're tempted to despair, Luke's quick to assure us that human authorities cannot arrest the gospel. Verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The gospel advances through speaking boldly in Jesus' name. So, Peter and John spend the night in prison. What if this was you? Can you imagine for a moment what would be going through your head that night? You're going to be tried by the Jewish High Court the very next morning. Perhaps you'd plan a diplomatic defence, carefully picking just the right words, leaving as much grey area as possible. Or perhaps a polite apology with a recantation. Perhaps you'd decide to deny the events altogether. 
I can't imagine it was an easy night for Peter and John, but instead I think they chose to trust these words that Jesus had already spoken to them. Luke chapter 12, verse 11. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is no unexpected disaster. Jesus had prepared them for this very moment. He's prepared you for this very moment. Don't be surprised when opposition comes. It's expected. The Holy Spirit is with you. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. This company of elders and teachers of the law formed the Sanhedrin. This was a council of 71 aristocratic and religious bigwigs. This was the equivalent of the Jewish high court, wielding the highest level of power and authority. You could not find a more intimidating audience in Israel. High priest Emeritus Annas and incumbent high priest Caiaphas, we've met them before, this was the same assembly which interrogated Jesus and sought out false witnesses. The same assembly which laid down false charges and demanded Jesus' crucifixion. For Peter and John, wouldn't it feel like history was repeating itself? As if they could expect a fair hearing. If crucifixion was the verdict for Jesus, how could they expect anything else? Well, here's their first question, and it concerns the healing of the lame man in chapter 3. By what power or what name did you do this? Peter answers, filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 10, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands before you healed. It's Jesus. Jesus. Completely Jesus. All I have to say concerns Jesus. Peter wants absolutely no credit for this miracle. It's all about Jesus. Listen to the boldness of Peter before these rulers. This is the same Peter who so recently denied even knowing Jesus. He speaks with such boldness and absolute conviction. What's the difference? What's changed? He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter finally understands the gospel. He understands who Jesus is and why he came to earth. So it's with boldness he speaks. This Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. You know him, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, and just in case your memory's a bit foggy, it's the Jesus you crucified. 
You discarded him to the rubble heap. You killed him. You killed the author of life. But God raised him up. He's alive. He's working. This man was healed by Jesus' power and Jesus' authority. You killed him. God raised him up. He's back. What boldness. The stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He quotes directly from Psalm 118. Before the days of the laser level, all construction depended on the cornerstone. It was the first stone to be laid in a building's foundation. It determined everything that was to come. Using this stone as a reference, the building could then progress in three dimensions. The cornerstone is the basis for everything else to come. Jesus is the basis on which God's kingdom is built. The religious leaders rejected Jesus, discarded him to the scrap heap. But see what a serious mistake this is to make, how fatal it is to have this attitude towards Jesus. For verse 12, the climax of Peter's defence. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name. Jesus only. Jesus alone. No other name can save. Peter says, you killed him, but in fact, he died for you. In God's great rescue plan, planned from the very beginning, God took upon himself on the cross the penalty of sin. God's anger at sin. Death. Jesus suffered death in our place. Who else has offered to die for your sin? Who else can die for your sin? Only Jesus. Outside Jesus, there is no forgiveness. Outside Jesus, there is no salvation. Yes, it's exclusive. Salvation is found in no one else. You might hear it said, all religions are, are basically the same. They all worship the same God. It's a lie. Don't believe it. All roads lead to heaven. It's an evil lie. Don't believe it. It's an evil lie which promises salvation in anything outside of Jesus alone. It cannot deliver. Imagine you get a phone call. Congratulations, you're the lucky winner of a two-week yacht cruise along the Spanish coast. Yippee. We just need to make a small payment to cover some you know, transaction fees and taxes, and then you'll be right on your way. 
Well, we all know how this story ends, don't we? Scams are so evil. An amazing promise which doesn't deliver and costs you dearly. Who else can save you from the penalty of sin? Jesus alone. Only Jesus. Why would you chase after anything else? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter was happy for these words to potentially be his last. He believes it's a truth worth dying for. Many Christians have died for this truth. And have you decided that this is a hill worth dying on? Bold speech about Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, upon hearing this defence, the Sanhedrin turned to jelly. They don't know how to respond. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there with them, there was nothing they could say. Their arms are tied. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. This was no sprained ankle. They realised that they have no real control over the situation at all. And so this is their decision. Verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have heard and seen. Throughout my time at university, I lived on campus at a college, and these were some great years. In a remarkable act of God's goodness, I started my time there with two other Christians. They were both desperate for people to come to know Jesus. We decided to start running a weekly meeting, which operated a bit like Christianity Explored, a place where those who were interested could come and hear more about Jesus. It was open to anyone. Obviously, it caught the attention of the college leadership. I was on my way to lunch one day, walking past the offices, and one of the staff popped their head out and said, oh, uh, James, have you just got a quick moment for a chat? We sat down and talked for a few minutes, and once the pleasantries were over, the real subject came out. Jesus. He said, we think it's a good initiative that you're running this group, but I just really want to make sure that you're not saying Jesus is the only right way. It's really important, you know, that we validate and hold as true other faiths too. Well, how would Peter respond? Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. Salvation is found in no one else. So what happened at college? We were respectful and attentive to people's views, but by the Holy Spirit, 
we kept speaking boldly about Jesus. And over a few years, my two Christian friends became three, which became four, which became five, and became six. The gospel advances through speaking boldly in Jesus' name. And since the gospel advances through speaking boldly in Jesus' name, it's no surprise that the attempt to silence the name of Jesus is Satan's first weapon used in the book of Acts. It's his first weapon against the spread of God's extraordinary gospel of grace to the ends of the earth. The attempt to silence the forgiveness of sin, to silence everlasting life, to silence the joy and peace found only in Jesus' name. It's an evil attempt which continues today. In the media, in schools, in our workplaces, at universities, amongst our friends. Attempts to stop you speaking about Jesus. Seemingly powerful attempts, but they're ultimately in vain. Peter and John and the early Christians knew this. Their first reaction to opposition is to pray. Verse 24. It's a big prayer. A bold prayer. A prayer which grasps just how big God is. And a prayer which recognises and prioritises his will. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then in quoting Psalm 2, they say, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The believers recognise that all that has happened to Jesus and all that is happening to them is not some PR disaster or downward spiral, but rather the ultimate outworking of this psalm. The kings of this earth, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the rulers, the ruling elite and the Sanhedrin, banding together against the Lord and against his anointed one, King Jesus. Their fury, their plots, their threats are not just towards Peter and John, but ultimately against God and his King Jesus. And how does God respond to these kings and rulers? How does he take their rage? If we read on in Psalm 2, we'll find out. And it's wonderful. Verse 4 of Psalm 2. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He laughs. Those who think they can come up against God's King Jesus. What a joke. It's an example of small dog syndrome. I see it occasionally at the vet clinic and I wonder if you've ever come across it. Have you ever walked along the footpath and suddenly your heart leaps out of your chest as behind the fence a dog erupts in ferocious barking. 
If you peer between the fence palings, you'll probably discover a tiny chihuahua. <laughs> no disrespect to chihuahua owners, but I find in general they have the worst case of small dog syndrome. I have a few of these unwilling patients at the veterinary clinic. They come into the clinic growling, baring their teeth. And if you're not careful, sometimes they lash out for a nip. A simple muzzle puts an end to the whole ordeal. It's ridiculous. In fact, it's hard not to laugh at them. They think they're something they're not. They think they're so much more powerful than they are. This is how God sees his enemies, those who rile against King Jesus. He chuckles. <laughs> your behaviour is pathetic. Please, you're embarrassing yourselves. Do you have any idea who you're up against? Who do you think you are? Opponents of the gospel might not always seem like chihuahuas to you and me. Sometimes they seem like rotwheelers in a laneway, in the dead of night, when you're all alone. But I think especially in those times, it's so comforting to remember how God sees them. They're just chihuahuas, just dust. All things fall under the control of his sovereign will and power. So, with a clear view of God's sovereignty and his enthroned King Jesus, the believers then pray for boldness. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And their prayer was answered immediately. God hears and answers. Verse 31, and after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's will. This is God's agenda that the gospel advances in power through speaking boldly in Jesus' name. The believers prayed for boldness and not safety. Boldness to keep speaking about Jesus in the face of persecution. How do you pray for persecuted Christians? How would you ask people to pray for you if you were in the same situation? Here's a prayer request from Christians in the Middle East that was sent out a few years ago. They say, please don't pray for us. Please pray with us. If you pray for us, you will pray for the wrong things. You will pray for safety. But if you pray with us, you will ask God to bring millions to faith in Christ. You will pray that when the inevitable backlash comes because of our witness, we will be faithful, even if it costs us our lives. Standing firm. Bold speech. 
How bold is your speech about Jesus? This is the sort of self-reflection this story asks of us. Do you publicly confess Jesus as Lord or is his name seldom on the tip of your tongue? Be ready to give an answer. Who do you fear? Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. I feel inadequate. I don't feel qualified to speak about Jesus. Good. God chooses to use ordinary people. God supplies the strength. Did you notice the description of Peter and John in verse 13? Unschooled, ordinary men. They weren't professionals. They didn't have a theological degree. God chooses to use ordinary people. They'd heard Jesus' message, and that was enough. It's confidence in Christ which matters, not confidence in self. The gospel advances in power through ordinary people speaking boldly in Jesus' name. Do people at work know that you're a Christian? What will you say tomorrow when a colleague asks, what did you do on the weekend? Uh, nothing much. Or will you say, I went to church? Who knows where the conversation might go? Pray for boldness. Or what about when someone asks, what are you up to tonight? And you say, I'm going to my connect group. They say, what's that? Uh, I, sp I suppose we drink cups of tea and chat about life. Really? Or is it really all about Jesus? Pray for boldness. Or would you consider this? Might you even have the boldness to begin a lunchtime Bible study or prayer group at your work with an open invitation? Don't be surprised if you hit opposition. Would you pray for this sort of boldness? The name of Jesus has spread to the ends of the earth through this boldness. The gospel advances in power through ordinary people speaking boldly in Jesus' name. Let's pray this would continue to happen. Let's pray. As for us, we cannot help but speak of what we have heard. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Salvation is found in no other name. We ask for ourselves and for Christians all over the world that we would stand firm and speak boldly in this name. In doing so, would you bring many to faith in Christ and in doing so bring glory to your name. Amen.